What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy podcast. And we discuss how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling. I am very, very, very excited for this episode. This is going to be formula-wise a little different from the standard Midnight Myth episode. We're trying something new. We got a lot of feedback online about what we're going to do today. And, well, let me give you the how we got to this episode. Is, is that okay with you, Laurel? Yeah, let's do it. Laurel and I, when we started the podcast, we found that we were often researching what other YouTubers and podcasters were saying about particular works of media we wanted to critically analyze. We wanted to see what the sort of conversation out there already was happening in one way to a inform us about the media we wanted to discuss and two to make sure that we're not treading over already used territory for example wouldn't be very relative to or relevant part of me to discuss the dark night as a response to America uh, post 9/11 because literally everyone's done a hot take on that piece of media already. So if we were to talk about a movie like The Dark Knight, we'd ask ourselves, what could we bring new to the conversation that's not there? And often we found people would say this phrase, it's not a perfect movie, but, and that really started kind of sticking to me. And I really started thinking about it Socratically, meaning I thought about it in the way that Socrates would approach an ancient dialogue as written by Plato. To say that something is not a perfect movie, it assumes that A, there is a thing that is a perfect movie. It assumes B, that you know what the definition of a perfect movie is. Otherwise, you can't say what one is not. And I found that a lot of people would use this phrase, it's not a perfect movie, but, and the reason that phrase exists has nothing to do with whether a movie is or isn't perfect. It's about troll-proofing your argument. It's about saying, I know this movie has flaws, and even though I'm going to celebrate what I like, I recognize that once this is out on the internet, people will attack me because I didn't talk about the flaws because negativity sells online and negativity gets bred online. So you couch your argument about why something is good by saying, I know it's not perfect, but... 
And I get why people do it, and I don't fault anyone for it, but the like philosopher in me was always bothered by it. Because if you're going to define something by what it's not, it's not as powerful than defining something by what it is. So if you're going to say this piece of art is mediocre in a certain way, however, let's ignore it and talk about the ways it's not mediocre, to me, is a fundamentally lazy argument. It's so much more powerful talking about what something is, even knowing that it might have some flaws. So I've been wondering for a long time, what is a perfect movie? If we all know what it's not, has anyone discussed what it is? And, and largely, this podcast is kind of informed by that very question. As you hear in our intro, we ask the question, what is the perfect story? And a movie is many things, but first and foremost, it is a story. So we're constantly searching for this idea of what a perfect movie is. Now here we are in 2020, having done the podcast for three plus years, I don't even remember now, and we're stuck inside for the COVID-19 pandemic. And Laurel and I were making breakfast, having coffee, and we decided we wanted to debate, is there a way to at least somewhat objectively define what a perfect movie is? Could we create a list of criteria and dispassionately put movies through this list of criteria to ascertain its perfection or imperfection? And we debated this for literally hours. We spent almost a whole day coming up with a list of criteria on how to find a perfect movie. And today we're going to share that list with all of you. And we're going to take your suggestions on what you think a perfect movie is and put it through our perfect movie gauntlet. Yeah. So if you're looking for some way to eat up quarantine time, uh, if you are bored and you know, you're tired of binging the same series over and over again, I highly recommend trying to dispassionately argue what a perfect movie is because you can eat up pretty much an entire day. And as Derek said, that is what we did. Uh, I'm really excited to go through this because we can have a little bit of fun with it, but it's also an opportunity for us to kind of exercise the critical muscles that we have been trying to uh, you know, practice with for all the time that we have been doing this podcast. And here's the thing. We spend a lot of time coming up with these criteria, but we don't know if they're right. We don't know if they are quote unquote perfect yet because we haven't tested them enough. And that's what we're here to do. We're here to test our criteria, figure out if they, you know, pass the mustard, if they stand up, uh, and figure out if, you know, this is a worthwhile experiment. So we hope that you have some fun with it. Uh, we definitely plan to have some fun with it. And we hope that if you think we are missing something, or if you think we're being overly uh, critical and not enough movies are getting through, or you think we're being overly lax and too many movies are getting through, feel free to suggest some additional um, criteria or feel free to uh, you know, tweak our formula in some way. Uh, yeah, I'm just excited to jump in and get started. Yeah, and another just disclaimer, we're not saying that we're right, as Laurel just said. We are testing this hypothesis, seeing if it works. And the idea is dispassionate. So I put my favorite movie of all time through the gauntlet, and it failed. 
And though that emotionally hurt, the idea is it's dispassionate. So one could still say, this is the perfect movie for me, but that doesn't make it, quote, uh, an objective perfect movie. So and I'll, I'll tell you specifically, my favorite movie of all time is the movie of Gladiator. It literally inspired me to go back to school and get a degree in history. To me, that's the perfect movie, but it failed to meet through our criteria. So if you suggested something that you really love and it doesn't make it through the criteria, or you're listening to us discuss something that you love and it doesn't make it through the criteria, um, that doesn't mean your movie's bad. You know, that yeah. doesn't mean your movie sucks. That doesn't mean um, you suck for loving that movie. Quite the opposite. At the end of the day, art is very subjective by its very nature. We all will see different things, and we hope you take this experiment with the respect and love that uh, we bring to all of our Midnight Myth projects. Yeah. So, how should we begin? Um, first, Laurel, do your thing. Well, if you are enjoying the podcast and you want to get in touch with us or just follow updates, the best place to do so is social media. We are on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. And we're on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. You can also head over to our website, MidnightMyth.com, where there are blogs. Uh, there's a new blog up there for our Lord of the Rings episodes and uh, lots of extra content there. You can find a link to our Patreon on that website. If you uh, have a few dollars that you would be comfortable pledging to us each month, you will also get bonus episodes or shout outs on the pod. And I think we've forgotten to shout out our latest patron uh, on our last few episodes. So I just want to give some love and uh, gratitude to Rebecca. Thank you for becoming our latest patron. Uh, we are so happy to have you. We're so happy to have all of our patrons. Thank you so, so, so much. Um, and then also on our website, you can find a link to our merch store. So if you need uh, a Midnight Myth shirt to wear around the house and in your Zoom meetings, uh, we've got you covered. So make sure you check out our merch store. And last but not least, if you are enjoying the podcast and you don't have money to spare or you do have five minutes to spare, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and or review, especially on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Uh, it really helps us to get out there and to reach new audiences. And we just, uh, it warms our heart every time we get a nice piece of feedback. It is so great to know that you're actually out there listening. So thank you for your support and on with the show. All right, so let's start with our criteria. Great. Let's go through our methodology, how we came up with our formula, and then we'll actually put some movies through it. Is Sounds that okay good. with you? Yeah. All right. So how it works, we have six different um, metrics or rubrics that we will apply to a movie. We go through them in order. Each is as important as the one that precedes it. If a movie doesn't meet all six, it fails to be a perfect movie in the Midnight Myth Perfect Movie Gauntlet. We start with number one. If it checks, then we go to number two. If it checks, we go to number three, and thus through all six. If at the end we say it passes through one through six, we have a perfect movie. So the first criteria is that it must be a whole and unified contained narrative in itself. This is important because we want the movie to be the movie. It can't be a movie that sets up another movie. It can't be a movie that is dependent upon another movie. And it also means that the movie itself can't just have nonsensical narrative elements that don't feed into the entire narrative. 
very importantly, it rules out um, middle movies of trilogies. And there are a good number of middle movies of trilogies. I'm sure several are coming to your mind right now, and several of them were suggested to us uh, that will not pass our metrics. This is not to say that The Godfather 2 and The Empire Strikes Back are not perfect in themselves, but they're not going to pass our metrics. And that was kind of painful for us to discover, but I think it's the right decision for what we were trying to accomplish here. Yeah, and it also means, for example, Marvel Endgame, which is dependent on, at the very least, seeing Marvel Infinity War and arguably all of the dozens of movies that preceded it in order to understand that narrative. While those are impressive feats, having these long serialized storytelling, doing amazing trilogies, we feel that those belong in their own separate rating. I think you could say, let us rate trilogies, let us rate serialized movie storytelling, which is now a new phenomenon, but because they're not single contained narratives, it doesn't work. It also means that if you're watching a movie and you're like, why is this scene here? It doesn't fit this actual narrative, or there are you know, just dozens of thrown out plot threads that don't feed back into a narrative, it would chop it off and we would stop. It would not be a perfect movie. That is criteria one, whole and unifying a contained and complete narrative. Uh, criteria two is it must be accessible. This is a tough one too. So what we mean by accessible is that it must appeal to a wide range of people, people all over the socioeconomic, people all over the educational uh, you know, gambit. A PhD in film must be able to enjoy the movie as much as just you know someone like me who doesn't have a PhD in film. So it has to be accessible. It doesn't have to be popular. It doesn't have to mean everybody has seen it and loved it, but the ideas can't be so intellectual and so flighty or the humor so complex and so dense that it turns off a large portion of the audience. After all, a movie is meant to entertain the masses. I think the core of this metric, uh, and I think there is some flexibility in this metric in terms of how you interpret it, but the core of it for me is that it shouldn't have large barriers of entry. I mean, I think a film can still be very intellectual and very high level or high concept um, and still be quote unquote accessible. There's definitely one that we're going to put through this uh, rubric that I think, or there's several that are, we're going to put through this that have really high level themes and intellectual stuff going on um, that are also really appealing to the masses. Uh, but for me, it just should not, it, it shouldn't exclude people by its very nature. It shouldn't exclude its audiences. Yeah. A good example of this off the top of my head is Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. Fantastic movie, not accessible. It's written in this pseudo-English-Russian language. It has graphically, realistically graphic violence that turns people off. It's hard to understand. You have to watch it three or four times to get the feel of the language. Though a fantastic film, an amazing movie, and certainly worthy of praise, it would be inaccessible, and hence it wouldn't pass um, number two. Great. Uh, three is timeless. Now, this is a tough one, too, because how do you determine something's These are all tough. Yeah. timelessness? So we came up with it must be at least 10 years old, and it must still hold up after 10 years. So what that means is, you know, this weeds out things that are incredibly popular in the moment, but over time, we look back and say, well, that wasn't very good. Think of Titanic, for example. 
like the most commercially, one of the most commercially successful movies of all time, I think we can all go back and look at it and be like, oh, what did we see in that? So there has to be an air of it. The movie has to hold up over time. 10 years might seem somewhat arbitrary, but the way we thought is after a decade, you tend to see major fads and trends change. The way we dress changes. We have new, um, you know, ways of informally speaking, technology changes. So if you look back at something 10 years from now and look at that and be like, well, that is just silly and stupid. It wouldn't be timeless. And it also kind of weeds out fad movies that are super popular that everybody loves that then over time we realize weren't very good. So like in 10 years, we'll put Parasite through this and it will probably pass. But for now, it's just not going to be eligible yet. It's going to have to achieve 10 years of, it's got to age and then we can put it through the rubric. And that's just a, a, a blanket barrier that we put to all movies through this particular criterion. Yeah. Now, and it's not just, Hey, it's 10 years old. It's now eligible. It's like, Hey, it's 10 years old. Is it still a good movie? Right. Do we all generally recognize that it holds up well after time? Um, next one is, and this is number four, zeitgeist forming, not zeitgeist responding. And this is where things start getting a little intellectual. A cultural zeitgeist is something that, you know, captures the moment and defines the moment and leads the moment. A zeitgeist forming movie, I think every classic movie does this and does this well. The easiest example of this to understand what we mean would be if you walk into a room during Halloween and you say, who are you going to call? Um, Ghostbusters. That would be Ghostbusters. Everyone would say Ghostbusters. Previous to that movie, nobody had heard of what a Ghostbuster is. It formed a zeitgeist around the movie. Another example is, you know, Rocky Horror Picture Show. It forms a zeitgeist. So movies that form a zeitgeist instead of following the zeitgeist. Yeah, essentially we're saying it should be either cinematically influential or culturally influential or both. Yep. And then next, number five, we have technically outstanding that means everything from the lighting to the set design to the acting to the quality of the script, it must be a technical masterpiece. Now, granted, you know, technology in film changes, so it doesn't have to still be the most technologically relevant, but it does have to hold up technically speaking. If I'm watching a movie and I'm like, these edits are making me dizzy, it's not technically outstanding. If I'm, you know, watching a movie and I'm like, that acting is just not believable. It's not technically outstanding. Great. Yeah. It's a big blanket. Like, what is the overall quality of how this film is made? Then last, last criteria, number six, is resonant themes which hold up under scrutiny. This means that once we start picking the movie apart, it has to say something. It has to be about something. That something has to stand. It has to make some sort of thematic relevance or argument. You know, like think of Inception. You have to start picking that movie apart. And when you do ask the question, now that I'm scrutinizing the themes of Inception, does it actually hold up under scrutiny? Or are these themes collapsing in on themselves Ooh. to the point where it doesn't really make sense? You're in the danger zone, sir. You have to be able to think critically about a movie to understand why this movie existed, what it says, and that thing that it says has to be articulated clearly 
and the movie has to support what it's saying. Um, and this would mean some movies don't do that at all. Like think of just like a you know Michael Bay action movie. You start to scrutinize what this movie's about, and you realize, oh, it's not about anything. Yeah. If it's not about anything, it can't be a perfect movie. A story has to tell you something. Yeah. That could be aesthetically, intellectually, emotionally. There's all different ways that it can hold up under scrutiny, but it can't collapse if it's a perfect movie. So that's our criteria. Uh, And again, we spent several hours coming up with this, but we have no idea if it is going to totally hold water. So if you have suggestions, uh, we would love to hear it and see if we can continue fine-tuning this. Now, we did source a lot of responses from social media, and a couple of things sort of came through and bubbled to the top in people's justifications, and you'll hear them in these responses, that there were some things that people continued to share as the reasoning why uh, they put forth certain movies. So these might be things to add or things to incorporate into our existing criteria. But let's go to social media and see what people had to say. So one of the first movies that I posted as a response to this was Jurassic Park. And at Bingeables Pod said, I was going to say Jurassic Park. To me, it's the perfect movie because I can watch it so many times and never get tired of the suspense and scary scenes. The music by John Williams is also pretty dope, of course. At Verbal Diorama said The Mummy. It's a perfect blend of horror, action, adventure, comedy, and romance, where each is balanced and given enough room to shine, while also being in a period setting. Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weiss are just kiss emoji. It's so wonderfully fun to watch still, 20 plus years later. At NFTDT, that's not for the dinner table, said uh, they posted a Dark Knight gif and said, for your consideration... I'm not a massive DC fan, but this movie was sensational. For me, it was the depiction of order trying to prevail over pure chaos, which ties in directly with ancient Egyptian mythology. The acting was superb, the action was on point, and the score was... That's how I'm going to interpret that emoji. Also, I just love the call to ancient Egyptian mythology. A, a podcast after my own heart. If you haven't listened to Not for the Dinner Table, you're in for a treat. Definitely check them out. Um, at Cooking with Grief, uh, posted a gif of Terminator 2. At Dan Napolitano, gave us a list, said, off the top of my head list, it happened one night. Vertigo, Unforgiven, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, and Mad Max Fury Road. Great list. At Fanboy and Hater, said, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Perfect superhero movie, perfect animated movie, even for people who don't like either superhero or animated movies. Diverse, action-packed, emotionally deep, and funny too. It's Spidey sensational. Love it. Absolutely love it. At Amy B 993 said, Moonstruck, every line in it is perfection. At Veronica Child said, The Deer Hunter, 1978. War, love, family, friendship, community, a wedding, terror, depression, grief, anger, hatred, suspense, amazing photography, plus a very handsome Robert De Niro. It's got it all. At B Spencer 84, Brian said, no country for old men is about as close as it gets. It has a good storyline. It has some dark comedy to it, and it has a great ending. At no structure pod one said, uh, they dropped a gif of the empire strikes back and said, battle of Hoth alone makes it a classic. And then, you know, there's the whole rest of the movie too. At stunt goat 75 said, jaws, Perfect mix of action, horror, comedy, perfect cast, and a score that is as important as the images on screen. 
At Daedalus Sir, said Dr. Strangelove, with the third man a tie for first or a very close second, not a wasted second in the film. Writing, Terry Southern mostly is flawless, dark and funny as hell, as is the cinematography, casting and performances, including but not only the seller's tour de force. Absolutely love that response, including the third man. Derek, you turned me on to the third man and that movie is crazy good. I love that movie. At Neil Shepperson dropped a uh, gif of gross point blank. Great response. At Jake G. Godfrey said, local hero, 105 minutes, not one of them wasted. Only film where I felt genuinely sad to say goodbye to the characters by the end. Perfect music by Mark Knopfler too. At In By The Eye said, rear window for its use of set and visual narrative techniques like no other. Moonstruck, love the characters in this movie and their arc with finding love. And Chocolat, Independence, chocolate, magic realism, humanity, chocolate, acceptance, chocolate. Oh, I said that. Wink emoji. At the Giggler 64 said the fifth element, sci-fi, comedy, action, romance, drama. Then over on Facebook, we had TJ say, I'm not sure where to begin with what might be the criteria for the perfect movie. Oh, TJ, don't you know we did that for you? Uh, But the 2004 film Closer with Natalie Portman, Clive Owen, Jude Law, and Julia Roberts is near flawless in my opinion. It's a twisted love story filled with amazing dialogue, intertwined character plots, tense scenes, desperation, tons of emotional exchanges, and of course, sex stuff. I've seen it a million times, although not in a few years, and I've loved it every single time. Then over on Instagram, at Ovat AJ Garrigas said, you mean besides The Princess Bride? It has everything. Quotability, rewatchability, fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, and miracles. Uh, and then I'd love to share, too, that on a Zoom call uh, over the last couple of weeks, my parents also put in a bid for Gross Point Blank and Almost Famous. Awesome. I just thank everyone for those responses. Um, it was amazing how many people responded with such really great movies, really great ideas as to why they thought the movie they were throwing into consideration was perfect. Um, just about everyone who suggested a movie in which John Williams did the score specifically called out the music. Yeah. And I think it just goes without saying that if you want to score a movie and you want that music to be as memorable and sometimes more memorable than the movie itself, you hire John Williams. You call John. Um, Yeah, a couple of other themes that stuck out. A lot of people said, you know, it didn't waste a line or it didn't waste a moment. Uh, Sort of everything served one purpose and came together really cohesively. That was a theme I picked out. Also, a lot of people uh, pointed out movies that, quote unquote, have everything or have it all, have something for everyone. That was definitely a theme that kept coming up. Uh, And I think those things sort of fit into the criteria we have, but uh, just really interesting to see those patterns emerge with our social media suggestions. Yeah. And, you know, once this episode is up, if you want to dialogue with us on social media and try to put a movie through the Midnight Myth Gauntlet, please let us know. We'll do it. We'll beep, boop, 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 beep, boop, boop, generating results. Perfect movie. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, so let's put some of these through the gauntlet. Let's yeah. test the Midnight Myth Perfect Movie Gauntlet. Let's see if some of these movies can be dispassionately and at least somewhat objectively proved to be perfect or not perfect. And just a reminder, if it's not perfect, it doesn't mean it's a bad movie. It just means it didn't pass our criteria. So the first movie that we want to put through, uh, which was also suggested by some friends on social media, is... The Princess Bride. Are you ready to run it through, Derek? Absolutely. So let's take first first criteria. Is it a whole and unified, a contained and complete narrative? Yes. Checkmark. Yeah, absolutely. It is start to finish. It is one story. It does have a little element of meta story in that it's a story within a story, but both of those are contained narratives. You don't have to have read the book to get the movie. There's no sequel and it's itself not a sequel. It's not serialized. Check mark number one. Two, would you say The Princess Bride is accessible? I would go ahead and say The Princess Bride is accessible. We know that it didn't necessarily have an outstanding box office run, but its VHS and DVD sales exploded. And this movie is uh, immensely quotable. Pretty much everybody can finish the line Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father, prepare to die. There is something for everyone in it. You can watch it as a young kid or you can watch it as an, an adult and it continues to reward you for multiple watches. So 100%, I would call it accessible. I mean, it may be the most accessible movie ever yeah. made. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. All right, three, timeless. Let's ask this question. It's clearly older than 10 years. Does this movie hold up or is it a slave to the fashion of the time that it came out? I think this movie holds up even better today than it did when it first came out. And that is, uh, you know, the fact that it's become a cult classic is a testament to that. So I would 100% say that it moves through that category as well. Yeah, I think that one's pretty easy. It's a timeless movie. I can see a world 100 years from now where parents are still showing their kids this movie in the way that uh, we still watch Wizard of Oz. And how many people are still sharing memes about... um, about uh, Wesley saying masks will be all the rage in the future. Like it's more relevant today than ever. Zeitgeist forming, not zeitgeist responding. This movie, um, while you can lump it into the sort of sword and sorcery movement, it's got some of the same sort of genre tropes of uh, 80s and early 90s movies. Uh, It is quite singular and unique in what it produced and the uh, just incredible, uh, you know, fan base that it has swept up. So I definitely think that this movie is lightning in a bottle. It's style, it's comedy, it's characters, it's emotion are all incredibly unique and have forged a movement into the future. Yeah, I do agree with you. It is a zeitgeist forming movie. Um, We mentioned how quotable it is. We mentioned that it's been it's still being used as memes today, yeah. which is a technology that didn't exist when this movie was out, and it still is forming a part of our cultural zeitgeist. So yeah, I would say that it is definitely forming a zeitgeist. However, you mentioned that it does it does form into genres, but just because you can say it's part of a genre doesn't mean it ha- it isn't culturally relevant or innovative. Yeah, I think what I'm getting at there is that there are a ton of movies that were uh, you know made in this sort of uh, sword and sorcery 
template, but a lot of them are not nearly as memorable uh, or as standout as The Princess Bride is. And it also has a little swashbuckler in it, yeah, too. Yeah, it totally does. Action adventure from you know a bygone era of film that you don't see a lot. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't just say yeah. it's what... And I don't think zeitgeist forming is genre-specific. Like, oh, it's a, in a genre. It doesn't form a zeitgeist. I think it's... You look at how our culture has responded and the way it drives our culture, and Princess Bride hits that out of the park. Yeah, absolutely. Here's the next one, and this one might be where we have a problem. Technically outstanding. Okay. I would, I'm going to submit some things and they might sound harsh, but um, I think they're worth talking about. Oh, you're not going to say what I think you're going to say, are you? For example, there are times when characters are holding boulders and it's clearly looks like a piece of painted styrofoam. There are um, moments where they are, for example, sailing on the sea and it just looks like a pool of water in a studio set. And there are parts of this movie, whether for budgetary reasons, whether for limitations, um, wherever they are, that I don't think are technically outstanding. I think the acting is superb. I think the script is phenomenal. But I think in set design in particular, we have some issues that aren't technically outstanding here. So here's where I'm going to argue for a little bit of leniency and a little bit of, uh, you know, openness in how we interpret this criterion. Um, The Princess Bride obviously is working on a lower budget than like a big action adventure fantasy like The Lord of the Rings. It's not on the same level. But what it does produce is uh, is a a landscape and a like set design and a production design that serves the tone and style of the movie perfectly. So even though it may look like we're in a pool with a matte painting behind us because we are, that matte painting is gorgeous and the movie is built on a certain level of camp and a certain level of anachronism and, you know, stepping out of the absolute realism of this situation. So I think that even the limitations of budget and of production design actually serve the movie uh, in a way that I can still check off this criterion. I don't know if that satisfies you, but it does me. If it's a perfect movie, I don't know. I just, I don't know about this one. I am I think I I'm going to say it doesn't pass technically outstanding. Wow. Wow. We're talking perfect movie. This is no time to kid around. We have to apply this dispassionately and while you're right there's a certain tone of this movie that is really fantastic and charming, there are still things that do look clearly bad. And if it looks bad, I think you have to interpret this in a way that it serves the whole. Each part should serve the whole. You know, we are not going to look at uh, a movie. We we have to grade this on a curve, I mean. You know, and if we are looking at a movie that is informed by the swashbuckling films of the 1920s and 30s, then we have production value that echoes that. And we have style that echoes that. So I, I I think we pass it. I I still am not persuaded by your argument. Okay, we may be stalemated here, but let's go to the next one. Yeah, I am going to say, while I agree that there there has to be some reasonable flexibility in applying it, where I disagree with you is that it serves the whole. 
to me, when I watch it, and this is, if it's a perfect movie, it has to pass to me easily through all of these. There are things that take you out of the viewing of the movie because you see how clearly it's in a set at a time. And it's amplified when juxtaposed to when they're shooting in an actual countryside or in an actual field, you know, for example, like, and this movie at times does it well. For example, they're in a clearly in a set through the fire swamp. Yeah. And it's fantastic. Yeah. But when they're on a boat, it looks subpar. I so think if they could you are make taking it- crazy pills. <laughs> That's fair. And I'm going to fire you from the podcast. We can, we can agree to disagree on this one. Dispassionate scientific argument. And I am going to kick you off the podcast boat. I, I vote no. You can vote yes. I vote yes. Um, I'd be interested to see uh, Twitter community, Facebook community, Instagram community. If you agree with Laurel that it is technically outstanding, to me, I think parts of it are and parts of it aren't. And that means it can't pass. So I don't pass. I can't believe I'm saying this. Uh, I do not pass the Princess Bride. What's the next criteria, though? The next criteria is resonant themes which hold up under scrutiny. So for the sake of argument, let's say I agree with you so we can move on to the next one. Does the Princess Bride have resonant themes which hold up under scrutiny? It's about true love. I mean, what is a more resonant theme than that? And it tests that theme uh, through multiple levels. Uh, it takes our characters through the literal fire swamp to test their love and devotion to one another. It kills people and brings them back. It you know, puts the, the hero and the villain against each other, not to the death, but to the pain. It's all, uh, it's all serving that true love theme. And true love is capable of producing miracles. Yeah, the theme doesn't have to be a complicated theme to no, hold up under scrutiny. No, absolutely not. In this, it has a very simple theme, and every part of the movie serves that theme. And as we unpack each scene, each moment, they all serve this theme that these two characters are in love, and even death cannot stop true love. It can only delay it for a little while. Oh, beautiful. I do think it it passes. So... Um, it passes the six. I say it fails to be a perfect movie, though slightly. Laurel says it passes. Let's move to another movie. As you wish. I, just, well, before we move to the next movie, yeah. I think the Princess Bride discussion really shows how this criteria works, and I think it does work well, and it's producing good discussions. So yeah. I'm happy. So far, so with good. With our first movie through the gauntlet. What's the next movie, Laurel? Jurassic Park. All right. Is this a whole and unified and contained complete narrative? Absolutely. It absolutely produced a whole franchise of sequels and uh, theme park rides, but this particular movie, the first one in the series, absolutely stands on its own. Yep. Um, You don't need a sequel to explain any part of the first movie. I agree. Yep. Would you say it's accessible? Yeah. I would absolutely say it's accessible. I don't even think we need to debate that. It's over 10 years old. Is it timeless? Yes. Um, from the fact that the visual effects still look extraordinarily good, even though they were really new. Um, the dinosaurs still look incredible. The animatronics and the CGI uh, still look great. Uh, I think the script and the dialogue, everything still holds up and doesn't feel too dated, even though it's definitely a 90s movie. So yeah, for sure. Yeah, if you look at other big budget special effects movies from the 90s, most of them don't look anywhere near as good as Jurassic Park. Yeah. 
And you could take Jurassic Park's visuals, which is a huge part of this movie, and compare it to movies being made now. And there are movies that don't look as good as Jurassic Park. So yeah, I definitely think it's a timeless movie. Next, do you think this is a zeitgeist forming, not zeitgeist responding? Yes. Um, this movie is so, so unique, but produced such devotion in people. Um, you know, anyone who anyone who saw this movie as a kid wanted to grow up and become a paleontologist or an archaeologist, right? Like, I, I loved dinosaurs growing up, and so this was, like, mind-blowing that you were able to, like, see dinosaurs on the big screen. Uh, it's still producing sequels because people still want to see this incredible fantasy of what if we could live with the prehistoric past right alongside us, and what are the ethics of that? Uh, I think it's still producing great discussions and great questions keep coming up. Uh, and it's it's easy to go back and rewatch it and see different layers uh, and different thematic interpretations of it. Yeah, I agree. I It's such an interesting, cool concept. It wasn't responding to any fads or yeah. trends at the time. It was establishing fads and trends, both in how it made the movie to the actual characters and plot. Yeah, I give it a pass on that one, I think, easily. Um, I think this next one is probably going to be an easy pass as well. Technically outstanding. I mean, one of the tightest movie scripts of all time. It's just so, so well-written, so suspenseful, so character-driven. All the characters from Ian Malcolm to Alan Grant and to Ellie. Oh, my God, the characters are so good. Uh, and then, of course, as the Bingeables pointed out, you have the epic score by John Williams that you can still hear and it still conjures up that image of the T-Rex. Um, and then, of course, we already talked about the masterful visual effects. So I would 100% say this is uh, technically outstanding. Yeah, uh, I've got nothing to add. That's I agree with everything. Great. All right, let's go to our last criteria. Does Jurassic Park have resonant themes that hold up under scrutiny? Yes. Um, you know, you can read this. We did a whole podcast on how you can read this as a sort of uh, man versus nature conflict, and it still applies to uh, questions of climate change and uh, how we steward the earth. The ethics um, of science yeah. and commercialism and capitalism. And like man becoming God and what that really means and chaos theory. And then there's, you know, the resonant themes of family and uh, you know, being someone who can care for others more than you care for yourself. Yeah, I think the more you scrutinize Jurassic Park thematically, the stronger the movie becomes. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the exact thing we're looking for to say yes to the six criteria. When you scrutinize the themes, do they become clearer, sharper? Does it hold up um, or does it start to dissipate? And this one holds up, I, I think... You can really scrutinize it. I mean, the one thing that I could see people pointing out is sort of the absurdity of extracting um, DNA oh, yeah. from the uh, genes of, you know, amber. Mosquitoes trapped in amber, yeah. And yet that is absurd, but there is a level of conceit to the fantasy that you have to accept that this is a a sci-fi-ish movie. So you have to accept that, yeah, somehow they figured out how to do this. And yeah, it makes absolutely no sense, but we don't need to scrutinize the plot in terms of its actual science. The question is, does that still hold up to the themes 
I think the answer is a resounding yes. And all of those themes work in concert and really form this incredible tapestry. They all inform one another. So ladies and gentlemen and non-binary, we have a tested, proven, midnight myth, gauntlet, undisputed, perfect movie, Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Park. Awesome. Well done. I Yep, Jurassic Park is a perfect movie, and you and I unanimously agree um, let us then move on to another one, shall we? Yeah. So Anything yeah. else you want to say about Jurassic Park other no. than it's perfect? No. Uh, yeah, it's perfect. I love it. All right. Let's, um, what's the next one? All right. This is going to be a tough one, guys. The Matrix. Ah, yeah. So I don't, did anyone suggest this? Was this one that Nobody we wanted to do? Nobody suggested this one, but this is one that we definitely wanted to do and that has come up in like conversations across the internet about what a perfect movie is. A lot of people will put this forth. Um, so let's, let's, let's do the matrix. Let's run it. Let's start with number one. Is it a whole and unified, a contained and complete narrative? I think we all know the answer is yes. Yes. The, uh, Wachowski, um, siblings, Sisters. Yeah. uh, they did, they made this movie without any intention of making another one. It was based off of the success of this movie that they made another one. But if those other matrix movies were never made, this would still be a complete contained whole narrative. Absolutely checks. Next, accessible. Here we might have a problem. I don't know. You think so? Well, let's discuss this. Is The Matrix an accessible movie? I think so. Um, you know, it was a huge hit, obviously. It was something that really grabbed the, the culture, you know, by the horns when it came out um, in 1999, a great year for movies, as we've talked about many, many times. Uh, and on its surface, it's just a really badass action movie that happens to have some really interesting cerebral stuff going on. Um, and I think that you can enjoy it on a lot of different levels. So a lot of different people can enjoy it in a way that informs the kind of movie that they like to see. Like me personally, I'm not a huge action movie fan. It's just not something that I'm that good at like really investing in. But I love The Matrix because The Matrix is also speaking to me on a whole bunch of different levels and it's asking big questions about like, why are we here? Is this real? Uh, you know, how do we break out of the prison of our minds? Like these are things that really get me going. So I think it is absolutely accessible. Okay, you convinced me. I, I just wanted to bring that up as yeah. a challenge. I, I agree. I am totally convinced by your argument. The Matrix is accessible. Ooh. Here we got another problem. Yeah, this is going to be a problem. So timeless. It is over 10 years old. I don't think it passes this one. Okay. I don't think this is a timeless movie. Okay. In meaning that, I, I think if you showed The Matrix to someone in Gen Z, I think a lot of them are going to be, why are they all wearing black? What are those weird uh, things that they're talking to? Are those phones? Uh, what's this awful music that's why is it like green why is everything so green i i think this movie was a type of movie that you really had to be there and if you were there it's timeless to you but i don't think people other than sci-fi geeks and film history buffs 25 years from now are gonna be watching it i think they keep making Matrix movies because our generation loves the Matrix. I don't know if that holds up. I, 
I think it is a product of its time. It looks like a 90s movie. It feels like a 90s movie. It is a 90s movie. I don't think I can pass it on this one. I understand. You know, I would make an argument similar to what I made for The Princess Bride in that, like, the the absolute 90s of it serves the the themes. You know, it's Rage Against the Machine. Uh, that's the, like, core idea at the heart of it is, like, let's, you know, express this primal rage. And that is kind of perfectly encapsulated by the leather jackets and the hair gel and the sunglasses. But I kind of agree with you. Techno-goth didn't age well. yeah. And it, this um, movie's techno goth stylistically, and if you were there and you liked it, you were totally a fan of it. Uh, the phones are, I think, a joke. But on now, other, you know, like people on, joke about the phones. Yeah, you know, and like, oh my god, we thought that was cool. There is a lot of the Matrix, and granted, these may seem superficial, but I think this was a product of its time first. And I don't think it is a timeless tale. So I, I, yeah, I have a hard time like really arguing back and I really hate the idea of not passing the matrix because it's so good. And, um, and, and because it hits all the other ones, I think so well, like it's hard to imagine a more zeitgeist forming, more influential movie that came out, you know, after 1970 than the matrix, like find one. Um, but at the same time, I think you may be right about it holding up. And it, if we're wrong, like, help tell us. Because I would I don't love think, to be wrong about that. I don't think we are. If it doesn't pass three, it doesn't pass. And I don't think it passes timelessness. And it, I, the Matrix is brilliant. Yeah. I will never forget the experience of seeing Matrix for the first time. I love re-watching it. But, you know, my second cousin, who is a freshman in Berkeley, I don't know if she would get it. You know, like, yeah. I don't know if my niece and nephew, when they become teenagers, if the Matrix is going to be timeless to them. It, and though it was technically outstanding for the for the moment, well, yeah, some like, of those effects don't age particularly well, and they are so important to getting into that movie. And unlike Jurassic Park, where those aged great, the innovations of that time didn't age well. Um, yeah, I'm going to have to say I fail it on Timeless. All right. So we are failing the Matrix. It is not a perfect movie. Agent Smith is out there, like, coming for us. <laughs> this is harsh. I failed two of my favorite movies yeah. of all time in yeah. The Princess Bride and The Matrix, and two of the most influential movies to me. And I love them. I think they're brilliant, but I can't say they're perfect. All right. So uh, do you want to do another one? Yeah, let's keep going. I'm having a blast. So let's do one that's a little different. That was suggested, I think, by Dan. Um, let's do Unforgiven. Oh, I adore this movie. All right, let's start Unforgiven through the Midnight Myth perfect movie gauntlet. Is it a whole and unified movie? Yes. It absolutely is. Well, okay. Actually, I'm just going to throw a small wrench in this. Oh, let's hear it. Yeah. So Unforgiven is, of course, the uh, you know deconstructed Western directed by Clint Eastwood and starring Clint Eastwood. One best picture, best director yeah, in the super, 90s. Super well received. While you're talking, I'm going to look up when it came out. Um, and I think one of the reasons that the movie succeeds so much is because, A, it's in the Western tradition and it's a deconstructed uh, genre film. And, B, 
you have to really know the the conventions of uh, the Western in order to understand how it's deconstructing it. And B, Clint Eastwood's presence uh, in this film is evocative of the man with no name, good, bad, and the ugly spaghetti Westerns. Um, and he's playing a character who is clearly informed by those roles that he played in spaghetti Westerns. So that's one knock against it, I think, on the first criteria. Can we call it a perfect movie if you have to be aware of the entire history of this genre in order for this to really resonate. All right, really, really interesting thought. It came out in 1992. I am going to argue that it is a whole and contained narrative for this respect. The Unforgiven was one of the first Westerns I've ever seen, meaning that I hadn't seen all the spaghetti Westerns, I knew that they existed because I know that Westerns were huge. My parents loved Westerns when they were growing up as kids, and so they enjoyed them. I had uh, traveled to New Mexico and loved the idea of a cowboy, but I hadn't seen all of those Sergio Leone. Or even like a John Ford film? or uh, Maybe here and there. Maybe they'd been on, and maybe I'd been experienced and seen them. I would say the Western is so baked into American culture and American mythic storytelling narrative that you don't have to have had seen the Clint Eastwood specific movies to understand the unforgiven, to understand that the unforgiven is saying quite clearly the cowboy outlaw isn't a hero. I, you get that from the movie by itself. You get that it's actually more heroic to stay home and be a terrible pig farmer than it is to drink and kill and that those things are horrible and they eat and rot your soul. And like, so I think it does have that in the movie by itself. I think if you just sat someone down who wasn't aware of the Western genre, I think, but they were, they've seen movies before, but they had no idea that Westerns existed. They would still be able to get this movie the movie is a whole and contained narrative, though it, it it draws from these tropes and it draws from these things. So does every story ever told. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And I think I'm going to let it through. It's just something that I wanted to bring up because it's a I fantastic point to get the most out of that movie. You do have to at least be cognizant of the, uh, the, the water that it's treading, you know, and the footsteps that it's walking in. And I think that's why the movie is so powerful is because Clint Eastwood is in it. And because we can see every role he ever played in this genre before. Yeah. Let me give you a specific example of what I mean about the power of the Western, even if you've never seen the movies. Sure. When I was a teenager, I worked a summer at a deli in Long Beach Island, New Jersey. That deli had a student exchange program where top students would come over for the summer on a work visa and they would work there for the summer, make money, have fun, and then go back. And a lot of them came from Eastern European countries. And the thing they thought all Americans were were cowboys. Yeah. A lot of those Eastern European, um, you know, countries were very poor, had very low access to, to American media because a lot of them were brutal dictatorships that controlled the media. And the idea of the American as cowboys traveled across the Atlantic ocean through Western Europe into central and Eastern Europe and planted an idea that Americans were cowboys. That's how powerful that idea is 
it's not dependent on having seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's helpful that we elected a cowboy president in the 1980s. But yeah, no, I, I think that's a good that's point. That's my point, yeah. Yeah, that's a very so good point. That's why I would say it passes the whole and unified narrative because you just have to know Americans like the Wild West and like cowboys and romanticize it. Yeehaw. And you don't have to have seen those movies. Great. All right, next. Is this movie accessible? Um... I, why don't you start on this one? Cause I don't really know how to answer that with this movie. I think it's incredibly accessible. Okay. I think, um, it's a movie that the one knock inaccessible, and I don't know if, how you feel about this. This isn't a movie I'm going to watch with my niece and nephew. No. You know, like it's very adult. It's very violent. It's very, very violent. It's very realistic in its portrayal of violence. Um, but I think other than the fact that it's a hard R-rated movie, I do think it's a movie whether you are um, a historian of the Wild West to someone that just wants to see a Clint Eastwood cowboy movie, I think you're going to be able to be, to be, able to be drawn into this movie and go on the journey with it. Okay, I'll accept it. Timeless. It's over 10 years. It is over 10 years. Has this movie aged well? Uh, I mean, if you want my honest opinion, like Clint Eastwood has lost his marbles. So like going back and watching a Clint Eastwood movie is a little bit weirder now than it was in 1992. Um, But I don't know if that can really be a, a knock against the movie. I mean, that could potentially be a knock against the person. Yeah. You know, but the movie itself, I mean... I think I, I think this is a movie 35 years from now people will be able to watch and still be able to get something out of it. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, I definitely think it's timeless. Zeitgeist forming, not zeitgeist responding. So, I mean, this movie definitely didn't come out in like the golden age of Westerns. It was well past its prime uh, in terms of like responding to the genre, but it is... Uh, often pointed to as one of the greatest Westerns ever made. And it is the like key example of the deconstructed Western. Um, there were certainly lots of movies made uh, in, in the golden age and after the golden age of the genre that were responding and deconstructing. But certainly this one is one of the first ones that comes to mind when it comes to uh, really taking the conventions of the genre and reworking them. So I I would be inclined to, uh, you know, like near past this one. I don't know how like deeply influential this was culturally, but uh, what do you think? Yeah, this is a tough one to, to pin down for the Unforgiven. I, I'm leaning towards a pass. And the reason I'm leaning towards the pass is because... This came out in the 90s, as you said. This was saying, hey, I'm going to make a movie about a Western. This movie is not going to be in the shadow of the big budget studio movies that like push the Western. And then we had the spaghetti Westerns, which were then themselves deconstructing the Western mythology. And here we are in the 90s. Um, in a period time of peace and prosperity, and here comes an American movie that's fundamentally saying the Western's a lie. And I think that is certainly not responding to the zeitgeist of the 90s, because to do that, it's also saying, 
this version of Americanism is kind of a lie. And I think that is absolutely, it's attempting to be zeitgeist for me. And it certainly is not zeitgeist responding. Does it have the zeitgeist like, who you going to call Ghostbusters? Certainly not. But I think it's enough to pass it. Okay. All right. Let's go to the last one. Uh, we have two more. Oh, two more. Next, number five. Is it technically outstanding? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's a beautiful, like it's it's gorgeous in terms of how it's shot. It's great acting by Clint Eastwood and Morgan Freeman. And Gene Hackman is so good in the, oh, oh my God. Gene Hackman is so good. Richard Harris is in it too, Richard right? Harris is in it. He plays a bounty hunter. Um, every character is well well acted, it's well written. Every single second of every frame of every shot is done with skill and care and love. Like the the people that made this film from top to down were really into making this movie technically outstanding. There's no part of it that I think fails this. I think it's I think of all of the things we're debating, that's the easiest pass. Yeah, yeah. And then I think you know probably how I feel about the last one because I've sort of already made the argument for it, but I'll ask you first. Resonant themes that hold up under scrutiny. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, again, responding to the Western genre, but also to uh, just our general relationships to violence. Um, I think that it is uh, definitely a an in-depth character study that continues to resonate. It deals with themes of race. It deals with community. It deals with how you confront your dark past. Uh, and I think those things do, at least to my memory of this movie, those things do hold up. Yeah. I think, I think this movie is very scrutinizable. And as you scrutinize it, I think like Jurassic Park, it gets stronger, not weaker. As soon as you start picking apart what's happening thematically in this movie is when it really starts to take shape. This is a movie that I think is better because it can be scrutinized. I think some of the reasons people were disappointed is they were expecting a shoot 'em up Western that Clint Eastwood was back to doing like an action sort of Western movie and weren't expecting this slow, careful, well thought out um, character case study about the effects of violence on the human soul. And I think that is as relevant now as it's ever been. And I think that is, to me, that's also a very easy pass. So we have it. The Midnight Myth Gauntlet says The Unforgiven is a perfect movie. You keep calling it The Unforgiven. It's, it's just Unforgiven. Just unforgiven. <laughs> I'm such an idiot. I'm the sorry. Joker. Um, <laughs> no, it's, it's great. Um, yeah, and you know, I think there were a few there that I, I still have some reservations about, but I'm okay putting the stamp on that one. Yeah, well I done. think it's not as easy as Jurassic Park. No. Um, there are certainly some things to, to meditate on. I'd be interested what everyone out there thinks. Maybe other people think it's not perfect, but it did pass the gauntlet. All right. So uh, we have time for what? Two more? Two think? more. Yeah. Okay. So the next one was a great suggestion um, from our, our friends over on social media, and that is Dr. Strangelove. Um, and like we debated putting Kubrick movies through this, and like so many Kubrick movies, I think are like technically flawless and like generally flawless, but are not accessible or let's, are. Let's do this one. But let, let's let, do Doctor Strange. Yeah, let's not get ahead. Let's start with: yeah. Is it a whole and unified, a contained, complete narrative? Absolutely, definitely passes that. Accessible. 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's a balls out comedy while also being, you know, one of the most popular sort of genres, which is a war movie and kind of everybody can go see a war movie. I would call this accessible. I struggle with this one. I mean, it's I like, think it's, it's an, definitely an, high level, I but think, I don't think that I, I, I with, think this is not a very accessible movie. Why? Because so many of the jokes require a certain a certain type of satirical and sarcastic wit that most people don't have. I think if we were to just take a hundred random people from all over the world and play this movie for them, I'd say you probably got about a 10% approval rating of it. I think 90% of the people would probably not like it, not get it, um, it's hard to find the humor in the apocalypse. That is a fundamentally inaccessible idea to me. And this is a movie that jokes about the end of the world. And I think that is a struggle for me to pass on the accessibility one. Derek's on his crazy pills again. Oh my God. <laughs> you I think mean, the end of the world is, a, is a joke? You can't fight in here. This is the war room. Like, come on. I, listen, I love, I'm not saying the movie's bad. Well, like, and, and this I'm is just one, saying, I just don't think it's very accessible. Well, this is one problem I think I have with our criteria, or at least one place where I want to sort of massage it and figure out how best to apply this in a way that is fair, is because like I don't think that just because a movie appeals to a higher intellect means it's not accessible. I almost feel like I want to draw a line between like our definition of accessibility and the idea of something having broad appeal. Um, because I think just because something doesn't appeal to literally everyone doesn't mean it's not freaking great. Um, and I'm more concerned with whether or not it has huge barriers of entry. And like Dr. Strangelove is a movie that I think everyone can see and understand, even if they don't fully understand all the jokes. I mean, there's tons of slapstick in it too. Like it can definitely appeal to different, different sets and it's also incredibly smart. Um, so, so that's where I, you know, hesitate with the accessibility is like, I, I want that to have a little bit more flexibility in that particular metric in terms of how we apply it. So you're saying that, yeah, some of these jokes may be inaccessible to some of the audience and some people might find the subject matter fundamentally offensive. Um, at the end of the day, when people go on the journey of the movie, they go on the journey. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes it accessible. All right. You've, you've convinced me. Okay, great. I'm willing to pass it on accessible. Thanks. Um, next, this is another one that we might have some trouble with. Timeless. You think Dr. Strangelove isn't timeless? I think it's a product of the cold war environment. Yeah. I think that cold war environment and the anxiety of being on the precipice of nuclear war produced a dark comedy about it. I think now that we're not under the threat of nuclear oblivion, is it as applicable now as it was then would be my question. And I don't know the answer, right? but I do think this is an area where it struggles. Um, I think the acting holds up. I think the, the way the movie is shot is holds up. I think there are parts of this that are timeless. I think the image of the cowboy riding the bomb is a timeless image. So good. Uh, I'm making the argument for zeitgeist yeah. forming right right now, so I know where that'll be. But the question that I have about it is, how much is this movie a product of the Cold War? And as we get further from the Cold War, 
does this movie stop being as relevant and hence is it timeless would be my question. So I want to kind of work with that idea because I think you're right that this is born out of a very specific Cold War anxiety, but there are a lot of pieces of art that are born out of that exact specific anxiety. I'm thinking like the comic Watchmen is born out of, you know, like a response to Cold War anxiety. Um, And that franchise has proven to be something that can be translated um, either into a direct adaptation or those anxieties have been translated through the HBO series to more modern anxieties that uh, still feel like they correspond. I think that what is um, key to Dr. Strangelove and to movies like that are that they tap into something that is not just specific to one particular moment in history, but that like we all continue to feel like what if we are at the end of the world? And like right now we're recording this in the middle of a global pandemic. Like the anxiety of being, you know, close to the end of the world is something that I don't think ever goes away. Okay. But that's not, so that's not what I'm saying though. So you're, you're right. The anxiety of being close to the end of the world, that's something cultures grapple with, but this movie's dependent on a particular geopolitical paradigm. That geopolitical paradigm is over. And because that geopolitical paradigm is over and has changed, that so COVID nineteen pandemic has no connection to Doctor Strangelove. But then, do you think that any piece of historical fiction that is made about the time that it's in, uh, you know, loses its relevance because we are past that historical hump? Well, I'm not willing to paint like a broad blanket and cover other movies not on the gauntlet. You know, like specifically asking the question, is Dr. Strange love timeless? I think the answer to that has to be, you know, is it too dependent on the cold war narratively to hold up in 2020? And I'm not sure the answer to that, that you provided satisfied me, you know, your answer is like, Hey, yeah, the world could end at any moment. We're always going to be anxious about it, but do we always want to laugh about it? Well, I mean, I would argue that yes, like we have to, but I think my my real response to this is like, I think just because we're not in the same uh, exact historical moment as a movie um, wh- while it's being made and when we're watching it now, I don't think that means that it loses any sense of relevance just because it's dependent on uh, the context of a historical moment. Like we can understand that historical moment. It's a big cultural thing that we're still like living with the consequences of and that we still understand. Yeah, I don't know if I'm sold by that argument either. So there's a difference. I'll throw an example here. You don't need to know anything whatsoever about the Roman Empire to enjoy Gladiator, right? Even though it's a historical drama, it's set in that time. You can still just go on the journey of Maximus and enjoy that movie. Um, Whereas with Dr. Strangelove, you do have to have at least some semblance of understanding that America and Russia literally had their fingers on the nuclear trigger for, you know, almost a quarter of a century. And if you don't understand that, if that's something that's not, that you don't understand, the movie then doesn't hold up. And over time, we understand that now, but over time, we're going to understand that specific part less and less, which would mean it becomes less timeless Then again, I'm also, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking I'm being super nitpicky. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm talking myself out of the argument because I'm like, well, we're asking if it's timeless now, maybe in 25 years, it's not, 
But, but it's already it been is. timeless for decades, you know? Like, yeah. I think that stands. I'm being too picky here. I yeah. think you're right. I, I appreciate it. I really do appreciate the scrutiny because yeah. I think we need that for, for these movies to pass. But. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to really stress on that one. And as I'm stressing it, I don't think my arguments are really that great. I think yours are better. So I'm willing to uh, be flexible okay. and concede and say, yep, even though it's dependent on that geopolitical situation, we still pretty much get that. And I don't think even in 25 years, people are going to just completely forget about the Cold War. Yeah. Um, so yeah, okay. So it is a timeless work of art. Zeitgeist forming, not zeitgeist responding. I think just in the virtue of dark comedy, I think there is no better example of dark comedy than Dr. Strangelove. And I think that continues to be uh, dark comedy and satire continue to be a really high form of comedy that is still very much in the cinematic consciousness and that is uh, still able to produce critical acclaim and success. So I would say just on the virtue of you know what it does with satire and dark comedy, it, it can pass zeitgeist forming. But what do you think? Can I ask this question? Yeah. I feel like I'm being so harsh on this movie. Yeah. Is satire fundamentally zeitgeist responding and not zeitgeist forming? Not satire fundamentally, but like satire done really well in a way that like uh, it it bites to the core. I think uh, I think the way that this movie handles it, yeah. I'm a little hesitant on this one too. Okay. Um, I mean, you just I don't said wanna... the cowboy riding on the the bomb, like. That's true. That I mean, there are some zeitgeist forming elements. Okay. Yeah. I'm willing to pass that as well. And how many, like how many comedies uh, have been made after this uh, that starred one particular like tour de force actor in several roles? Yeah. That's Peter Sellers in this. And he was a freaking genius. One of the most incredible actors and incredible comedic performers of all time. And I think that he heavily influenced uh, comedies as they're made today. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. Zeitgeist forming, not zeitgeist responding. Is this movie technically outstanding? Yes. I mean, it's a Kubrick. Yeah. But do we even need to say? Right. It's Kubrick and you Peter Sellers. any still from this too, and it's a glorious it's, piece of art. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's technically outstanding. And then I also think this last one is going to be an easy pass as well, because I think we've already discussed it in part in our journey to the six criteria. Resonant themes which hold up under scrutiny. Yeah. Similar to the other movies that passed, the more you think about this movie the better the movie becomes. That's really what we're looking for in resonant themes that hold up under scrutiny. Once you start to deconstruct it thematically, where are you left? And you're left with one of the most brilliant portrayals of the absurdity of human nations trying to kill each other. Yeah. Fundamentally for nothing. Yep. And um, yeah, I, I, I can't think of a movie that holds up under scrutiny better yeah. than Dr. Strange Love. So big thanks to at Daedalus Sir for suggesting that one that ended up passing, even though it took us some debate. But it, there was some debate, but Dr. Dr. Strange Love passes the gauntlet. It is a perfect midnight myth approved movie. Awesome. All right, we have time for we're actually over time, but I don't care. I'm having so much fun. We're gonna do one more. We're gonna do one more. And I've thought about this one a lot before doing it. And guys, you're gonna hate me. Yeah. You're going to hate me. But let's talk Ghostbusters. Who are you gonna call? Uh, yeah, we've brought it up a couple of times because we know that it passes at least one criteria. But let's start um, with number one. Whole and complete unified narrative. Yes. First one. Yeah. I'm gonna go quickly through the easy ones yep. because we don't really have to debate yeah. that. 
Accessible, absolutely. Anybody can watch Ghostbusters. Timeless, 100%. Yeah. Zeitgeist forming, not zeitgeist responding. This was my the example, example. I used <laughs> to, to say what is a zeitgeist forming movie. Ghostbusters is a zeitgeist Everybody movie. wanted that Halloween costume. Everybody knows about it, yeah. So let's go to the ones that I think you guys are going to hate me, you guys, gals, and non-binaries. Is this technically outstanding? Let's talk about the things that are. The acting is phenomenal. Yeah, the comedy's great. The script versus the, and the improv moments, because some of it is improv, is phenomenal. Um, some of the visual effects are quite good. Some of the ghosts look very good. So I'm thinking of Dozer. And Dozer, I know yeah. this was the 80s. And a lot of people will say, you know, it was the 80s. Star Wars existed and yeah. was inventing computer graphics to make their movies look good. E.T. was in the 80s. Uh, there's just a lot of movies from that era and time that were able to technically do special effects that still look pretty darn good. And rewatch Ghostbusters, everyone. There are effects that are Zool looks, awful. Zool looks bad. Um, Gozer as the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, I think actually looks pretty good. And that still holds up, I think, um, to, to this day. Agreed. But Zool looks bad. Yeah, I'm sorry. I meant Zool. Yeah. Yeah, when I said Gozer. I meant Zool. So... Granted, that's one effect. Yeah. That's one that's effect. that's hardly enough to, you know, totally knock against a movie. The rest are pretty good. But if I was willing to fail The Princess Bride because Ugh. of set design, I have to I have to fail Ghostbusters for the special effects. Can we grade it on a special curve because Sigourney Weaver is so, so sexy in it? Uh, Does her sexometer just like <laughs> make up for Zool? You have, you have, you, you know me, Laurel, you know me, Midnight Myth listeners. I'm a man that sticks to my laurels and oh, my wife, whose name is me. Laurel. Um, if I failed the, the Princess Bride, I have to fail Ghostbusters on Technically Outstanding. It's technically really, really good but it's not technically outstanding, even if you compare it in the time and want to grade it on the curve of, of when it was made. Even then, there are movies of that time and of that era where the effects still hold up. And granted, I, you're, I can hear what people are going to say to me online, but it was a comedy in the 80s. Nobody ever did a comedy special effects it movie. Is, it is campy and like... It's supposed to look silly and over the top and all of that is so true and I totally agree with all of that. However, mediocre is mediocre. The good, the great, and the mediocre kind of balance it out to just being technically good, not technically outstanding. I have to fail Ghostbusters at five. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Do you agree? Um, I tend to agree. And the other half of that is that, uh, as you know, we did an entire podcast on Ghostbusters just a few months ago, and we also had some knocks against how it handles mythology. So even on the final criterion, um, you know, I think there are some great successes thematically, but for the most part, it's a lot of fun without like really resonating on a like 
huge thematic level in the way that a lot of the other movies that we've put through did. So um, you think it doesn't pass six too? I think it doesn't pass six yeah. as much as I love it. And as much as I think like this is a movie for everyone and this has everything. And in so many ways it is so flawless. Um, it just doesn't necessarily resonate thematically in a way that holds up under scrutiny the way that Jurassic Park does or the way that even the Matrix does. And we failed the Matrix. So like, I think that we have to be able to apply really, really strict regulations to movies that pass these criteria. Otherwise, you know, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah, it, so it just can't pass... And, you know, maybe our criteria is wrong if we're failing the Ghostbusters. That's true. That's something that someone could say. However, we put we put the screws to Dr. Strangelove. I did. Yeah. I didn't want to pass Dr. Strangelove. I thought when that was suggested, like, no way that gets through. And once we put the screws to it, the arguments for, for it absolutely outweighed the arguments against it and were the better arguments. I don't think... For the criteria of technically outstanding and resonant themes under scrutiny, you can pass Ghostbusters. If we're being dispassionate and we're trying to be objective, Ghostbusters, not a perfect movie. Ooh, wow. Okay, this has been outstanding. Um, I've had a lot of fun even when uh, this got, you know, a little uh, a little tense, even when I accused you of... Uh, overdosing on your crazy pills. Um, I I still enjoyed this. I hope that our listeners enjoyed it too. It's a little different than anything that we've done before, but uh, we really felt like after weeks and weeks of frying our brains out on the Lord of the Rings that it was time to do something a little more fun. Um, and, and a little different. Yeah. We are way over time. We thought this was going to be a short episode. But here we go. If we didn't get to your movie, likely it was because we didn't see it or... We, we hadn't seen it in a long time. Or we hadn't seen it in a long time. Um, or one of us hadn't seen it and we were also out of time. Yeah. So, But what I learned from this more than anything is that it doesn't have to be a perfect movie to be a great movie. Most of my favorite movies wouldn't pass through this. And, uh, you know, there's a quote from a book that I really love called The Goldfinch, uh, where a character says, you don't love a painting because it's universal. You love a painting because it speaks to you personally. I'm paraphrasing that. Um, and I feel the same way about movies. You don't love a movie because everybody can love a movie. You love a movie because it looks you in the eye and speaks to you personally and says, you know, I am your movie and I am going to touch you right in your heart. Um, so that's what I take away from this. Continue to send us your suggestions uh, and enjoy. Binge some of these movies and let us know if you think they passed the test. Yeah, and we agreed on all of them except The Princess Bride. We couldn't find middle ground there. And I hope everybody is staying safe. And until next time, be kind. Be kind. Be kind.